This is the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast with your hosts, Chris Spear and Andrew Wilkinson. Each week, we'll be speaking with food entrepreneurs and people in the culinary industry. The following episode is one of our COVID Zoom sessions. If you're interested in learning more about our organization dedicated to helping people build and grow their food businesses, look us up on the web at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and .org and on Facebook and Instagram at Chefs Without Restaurants. Now, enjoy the show. This is episode 40 of the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. On this episode, we speak with Jacob Pratt. Jacob is a sales rep with International Gourmet Foods. Prior to working there, he spent most of his career working in and running kitchens. We discuss the impact of COVID-19 on the restaurant industry, including diminished sales, the supply chain, pivoting to the carry-out model, and restaurants turning into mini-grocery stores. We also talk about work-life balance and being addicted to the restaurant lifestyle. Thanks to this week's sponsors, Tyler Wright, Danny Spletter, Ron Krieger, Cafe Bueno, Little Fig Bake Shop, Maryland Bakes, and the Savory Spoon Catering Company. Thanks so much, and have a great weekend. All right, welcome everyone. This is Chris with the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. Uh, Today, we have Andrew Wilkinson of Pizza Llama back co-hosting. Exciting. I had him on as a guest, which seems seems weird a couple weeks ago. We got Jacob Pratt from International Gourmet Foods here as our guest today. So welcome, gentlemen. How's it going? Good, man. Thank you for having me. Enjoy the podcast. Great. I love hearing that. Yeah. Uh, why don't you give us a little bit of background about you, what you're doing? Maybe start with your, your culinary background. How did you get into food and where that lead you to today? That's a... Uh... It's a pretty long journey, in all honesty. I got into food um, from my grandmothers, watching them cook. I always loved cooking with them. My fondest memory is making stuffing on Thanksgiving with my grandma in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Her teaching me how to mix everything together and do that. And, um, you know, from there, I started out at a pizza place when I was like 14 years old as a dishwasher. They taught me how to make their dough. Then they taught me how to make their sauce. Then I was making pizzas. Then I was making subs. And I was dropping wings everything that anybody's ever worked in a pizza place has gone through. And um, I did that all through high school, you know, just worked in different places. I worked at the Bavarian Inn in Shepherdstown, West Virginia, which is a little bit more upscale. Um, Worked in a place called Subway Seafood in Hagerstown, Maryland, where I was literally just steaming crabs all day. And then they taught me how to cook scallops. And then they taught me how to, you know, actually broil seafood and things of that nature. So I picked up a lot of stuff as I went. Um, when I got out of high school, I did construction and I was a plumber, actually a plumber's helper. And I worked with this company that traveled all across the country, um, from Charlottesville, Virginia to Orange County, California to Topeka, Kansas. So I'd go and I would do these jobs. And even at that time, like I would get side jobs at restaurants just because I like doing it. And it was beer money. So I always just stayed in restaurants and then I eventually just migrated back into them. You know, um, there wasn't a lot of construction work, so I became a line cook and got into a few restaurants, then just slowly worked my way up the ladder to where I became a sous chef, then I was an exec. I uh, went down to the Outer Banks of North Carolina. I did that for three summers. That was incredibly high volume, you know, just bam, 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 the whole way from May until August, mid-August. Then it just drops off and it's a ghost town. And, I mean, I've worked 
every position that you can think of in a restaurant from back of house to front of house. Um, I've worked at Chinese takeout strip mall joints just because I wanted to. You know, I went in there and just said, I just want to work here. I want to get the experience. So I worked in them. Then I stepped into management, eventually became a uh, food and beverage manager for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Department of Interior. I was a contractor through Aramark. So that's where I, uh, I started my sort of corporate career in the food industry. And that was dealing with government officials and government employees from all over the world that would come to this learning center. And I would do the dinner and we had a bar downstairs. So I would do dinner for them and I would take care of the bar downstairs. And um, yeah, I mean, just a lot of different experience. Never went to culinary school. Was one time working in a French bistro with a French chef. And in the middle of service, I just asked him, I said, you know, do you think I should have gone to culinary school? And without even skipping a beat, he just looked at me and he said, well, you're in it and you're not paying for it. I'm paying you. So that was kind of my, that was the end to my question of whether or not I should have gone to culinary school. And, um, you know, after management, I sort of wanted something different. So I got into sales, used to work for the biggest broadline food distributor in the world. Um, I know who, that's Cisco. Everybody knows who that is. And um, then I ended up at IGF. I love the company that I work for now. It's family owned, independent. We carry pro- quality products and we provide, pro- you know, quality services. I couldn't ask to be at a better place. and you know, the universe tends to fall where it's supposed to. And I really feel like this is where I should be right now. And it's a great company to work for. And I love it. So that's a short, unabridged story to my food. It's quite a background in food. It sounds like you've done a little bit of everything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I got ADD like a motherfucker. I, I'm crazy. Sorry. I didn't know that. <laughs> it's well, fine. We curse on the show. I got ADD like crazy. And like, if I use my head, I can be pretty smart. So it's like, oh, you can put Jake over there. He'll at least make it through, you know? So then that's like, that's how I got on broiler station. You know what I mean? And like, and actually the first way that I ever took over a restaurant was I was working for this Southern man named Mike battle. He taught me how to cook, but he was crazy as all hell. And he loved smoking crack. And so we were, um, (laughs) we're in the restaurant and like, I was working with him for a long time and he taught me all this stuff. And one day I show up and he's just not there. And I'm like, what's going on? And the owner of the restaurant goes, well, it looks like you're the chef now. And I said, what do you mean? He said, Mike's on one of these binges. He does them about every six months. I didn't know. I hadn't been there that long. But that night, I took the reins over and I ran a relatively busy restaurant in the Outer Banks in the middle of August, or I'm sorry, in the middle of July by myself. And that's just sort of when I took over and was like, I can do this whole thing. And then I got into the ordering. I got into, you know, meeting with people, you know, menu planning, menu development. So yeah, it's a crazy story how I got to where I was, but it was just sort of uh, being the grunt who didn't give up in a sense. You know, disclaimer, everybody who's listening, but uh, Jacob is actually my rep at IGF, so we get some <laughs> cheeses and stuff through him. And uh, I don't want to make this a commercial or anything, but I never heard that whole story before. It makes me feel really good to know you had that much experience. Like, that's a shitload of experience, more than most people I know. And it always seemed like, even already, I already kind of trust you. You know, sometimes you you just give me something on the fly if what I want's not available, and it always is good. And I think it's just because you know you've been through all that shit. I messed it up enough myself personally to know what to send out. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Like, like I've I've been through the ringer of all of it, and it, it's been great. I mean, food is beautiful. It's art. It's life. It's everything, and it's all encompassing. 
So, um, you know, I have a degree in marine science. When I was down on the Outer Banks, I put myself through college by working in kitchens. Wow. So I got a degree in marine science, but I'm not in marine science. I'm in food because it's, it's just what I do. I'm sort of destined to do it, I guess you could say. I think that's how kind of most of us feel. Yeah. So if you had to throw like a rough number out, what percentage of sales reps have a background like yours in cooking? Do you find that it's a lot of guys who've worked as cooks and chefs and have a pretty good idea of what goes on in a kitchen? Yeah, I'm going to say 65 to 70% of the people that are in this, um, that are in my line of work, um, they were definitely in the food and beverage industry. And I would say probably about 90% of that 70 is chefs. Other than that, it's front of house managers, you know, things of that nature. But yeah, I mean, a lot of guys that are in this have been sweating behind the lines and been in the weeds for years. And it's their way out. It's almost like the last place you could be to still be in the industry but not be in those kitchens, sweating your ass off for 14 to 15 hours a day. So do you ever get a lot of crap about that? You know, it's kind of like the same in our industry. Like when you stop being a chef or line cook, even guys like me who go to become a personal chef, it's kind of like, oh, those who can't teach or, you know, you couldn't handle the kitchen. Is it kind of the same? Does anyone ever razz you and say like, oh, you, you know, got burned out, you couldn't cook. And now you're just kind of like a sellout. Have you heard that at all? Yeah. Yeah. A little bit, a little bit. My response to that usually is kiss my ass. I put my time in. That's a good one for sure. <laughs> you know, do you get any um, weird requests for anything? Like, what are some of the things that people come to you and want you to try and find for them? Is there anything really interesting or anything that's been hard to get? Oddly enough, I got a request for fish semen. There's <laughs> a Michelin starred chef who actually does a pickled beet covered in fish semen in Japan. And one of my customers was like, you ever heard of that? And I was like, no, but I'll check it out on my computer. So I went into my search engine, pressed in semen, nothing came up. So, and then, you get, the, and then you get the worst targeted ads for the next year and a half on Facebook <laughs> and Instagram. Right, right. But no, I mean, nothing really, be, nothing's really even that far left anymore because the food world is so exposed. You know, like, um, like activated charcoal became big at one point in time and we had it in stock people had been using it you know what i mean there's people who are utilizing it but then it came on an instagram post or food network and then people started wanting it you know so like good stuff like that and uh every once in a while i'll get a request for a very like rare cheese from somewhere and i could usually source it but other than that it's not really weird requests because i get a lot of like you know, I have a lot of different types of restaurants that want different types of stuff. So I've even become more well-versed in product I had no idea about in my culinary career because people are doing it now. Really, everything everybody knows about almost everything. So now it's easy to get. You know? So are you integrated into, like, with, do you still, do you work with Cisco or U.S. Foods or any of those? Like, if someone works at a place where they order from Cisco, like, are you third party and you do drop shipping, or are you 100% independent? How's that? No, been? we're 100% independent. We stand on our own 100%. Um, we have uh, three warehouses, one in Springfield, Virginia, one in Charleston, South Carolina, and one in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, we bring everything in our own. We do our own distribution. Nobody has a piece of us. So... It's a thing I'm very proud of, to tell you the truth, because we got some really, really good stuff, and we do it on our own. So, Andrew, you're getting some of your pizza stuff from him? Yeah, and I, I think a lot of it is uh, actually, like, in-house stuff, too, which is really cool. Um, mm -hmm. Jacob probably speak more to that, but, yeah, like, uh, 
I get some cheeses. I get my tomatoes from them. Mm-hmm. And it's like, a. can you tell them about that brand, Jacob? Yeah, yeah, no. Um, so he gets the Mauricio tomatoes from me and he's got the quality from me before. And we're actually the importers of them into the country. So um, they're What's exclusive to like us. Um, we don't sell them off to other companies. You know, they're ours and ours alone. We're an Italian-owned company, independently owned. He started out with four items about 32 years ago. We're now up to about 6,000 that we have in our warehouse. And we have a lot of outreach that we can do to get you whatever you want. But, I mean, yeah, the tomatoes you're talking about, it's not a San Marzano, but it's a, you know, it's the next thing to it. It just doesn't have the stamp on it. You know, it's a plum tomato from Italy, done wonderfully. The crops are amazing, you know, and just wonderful product that we bring in and Mauricio who's the president of the company and um, you know sort of an idol and mentor to all of us has a wonderful relationship with his people and everything that he imports and we have some stuff that other people have but then nobody's ever going to have that Mauricio tomato you know nobody's going to have the Miguel Valentino olive oil and if they did happen to get it they got it through us somewhat you know we're the importers of a lot of different really good products yeah, so. I can attest to that. I use the olive oil too. So yeah, yeah, most of. I'll, I'll get you a sample, Chris. Yeah, that sounds good. So Andrew, is this something that he sold you on? Like, did you find out about these tomatoes and you went looking for them, or is it like you guys started developing a relationship around products and then you learned about the tomatoes and such? Pretty much. I mean, we talked about we talked about what I needed, and I had some suggestions, and he had some suggestions. We, you know, is is kind of like we we found a good middle ground for me between like quality and and the best product you can get for your buck you know what i mean and sometimes that is the best quality so uh jacob i mean obviously keeping with current situations like covid19 like can you talk what are you seeing how's your business you know because like with so many restaurants closed so many specialty restaurants closed i'm sure it's not a great situation for you guys like what are your numbers down as sales like what are you seeing out there on the ground no, no. I mean, it, it plummeted. It literally plummeted overnight. March 16th, they made that, um, you know, they made that announcement. And a week from then, March 23rd, the numbers were just drastically down. Everybody's down. The, the whole industry is, um, whether, you know, be a specialty restaurant or, you know, just a mom and pop shop, everybody's down. Um, you know, we've seen, it's been hard for a lot of people. You know, like it's been hard for uh, the owners. It's been hard for the line cooks and it's been hard for the dishwashers. It's been hard for us. You know, my uh, my sales, they, I mean, they plummeted. They just skyrocketed down. But like I said, I love my company. They kept me on. And now we're just plugging through and sort of keeping a pulse on what's happening with these restaurants. So, you know, I um, I reach out to people if I don't hear from them. When I do hear from them, I take what they need. Um, you know, let them know I got their back. How can I help? Um, everybody obviously has transitioned to the takeout curbside pickup option. And I believe that's going to be in our future for at least a year. Uh, I don't think it's going anywhere until there's actually a vaccine for Corona. I think that's when people are going to feel comfortable with perhaps going out again. And even then there will probably be some social distancing, but, um, yet to go and curbside pickup is now the name of the game. Um, I was listening to the podcast that you did with Andrew about him and how he flipped his, uh, you know, business model. And it, it just made sense. Like plant yourself somewhere, establish yourself and get that business going. 
You know, there's some, I've spoken with some people in the industry who are like, well, you know, I thought about getting online ordering, but I don't want to, you know, invest this 2,400 or 3,600 or whatever they have to invest to get a new POS system to do online ordering or to do to go. And I tell them, I'm like, just do it because it's the investment you need right now. This is going nowhere. And even, I believe that even after we get back to normal, per se, whenever that may be. I think that to-go and curbside pickup is still going to be an integral part of the industry because yeah. if nothing else, these restaurant owners are seeing how much money they can make from to-go. I you mean, know? places like Outback have been doing it, so it's, I had to be a viable thing. Right. Yeah. Somewhat. Now it's yeah, I think, I mean, totally high-end is going to have the hardest time. Like, if you're like that Michelin star restaurant, like, what does your food look like, especially if you're doing you know, molecular gastronomy stuff and foams and platings and all these sauces. Like I think they're going to get hit hardest and you're going to see kind of like the upscale homey places Mm -hmm. translate maybe a little better. Like I'd be concerned about a place that kind of is one of those places that has like 17 line cooks and they're all have their hands in these plates to put them out. Like how does that translate and what do you do? And that I've seen actually a lot of chefs adapt to it, you know, to whereas, whereas fine dining or nicer restaurants before, they're still putting out amazing food, but it probably scaled down a little bit. Yeah, I think uh, Grant Ackett's at Alinea. I saw a post he and his business partner, Nick Kakonis, are doing a lot of cool stuff. And, you know, their signature dessert is this thing where they spread out this giant, like, paper tablecloth on your table and bring you this giant chocolate shell and, like, smash yeah. into all these sauces. And he's been doing that to go and, like, actually loves people posting on Instagram. So he's sending home these kits with all the components and encouraging people to, like, throw this paper out on their dining room table and just smash it and make this big thing and then take a picture and post it. You know, I think those guys are so far ahead of the curve. They, they seem to always be, like, 10 steps ahead everyone else so i'm paying a lot of attention to what nick and grant are doing at their restaurants because i think that's a good model for you know what high-end dining can look like in a takeout scenario yeah but also to say like i mean shout out to one of my favorite local restaurants the tasting room in frederick maryland nathan johnson great chef over there they just reopened and they're doing to go and i mean his menu is stellar looks amazing and i saw pictures of him this past weekend i mean just like tickets lined up selling out so i think yeah in a sense it's gonna scale back a bit but i think people still want that element of nicer food you know like i think they're still gonna want that so it's gonna be sort of finding that balance of how nice can we make it but how nice can we make it to make it still affordable for takeout yeah and how much yeah how much do people want to pay like exactly you you'll maybe pay $35, $40 $35, $40 for dinner, but these places that have these like $100, what about a, a Volt that, you know, has yeah. a table 21 where it's, you know, like $125 for this multi-course meal. How does their food translate to to-go if it does at all? And what are people willing to pay to have that kind of experience in their home? How do you adapt? Tasting room, I feel like you can still do a lobster mashed potatoes, a filet, some really cool vegetables, like that holds up well, but to really get into that, like, very fine dining, intricate stuff. I don't know how that's going to work out in a to-go scenario. And I don't either. And I'm like, you know, Dan up at Bold is also a friend of mine too, client. Um, I don't know where they're going to stand. You know, um, I'm actually, I'm looking at my biggest client that I had. I'm really not even banking on them coming back. Tell you, Um, it it was a, uh, it's a huge resort down in Middleburg, Virginia. And I mean, like, I think the cheapest room is like $450. 
a night? And how are they going to populate that in order to facilitate the five restaurants they have inside this resort to be ordering this mass amount of food? Like it, it, it's just not going to happen anytime soon. Yeah. You know, so in my head, I've almost put it out. I'm like, they'll come back when they come back if they do. And I hope they do, you know, but like that, that is, it's very daunting. And it pains me to even think about some of these people that put out some of the most progressive, amazing food around this area, not being able to open their doors again. What do you think of of this idea of like turning your restaurant into a high-end grocery store where the restaurants are ordering products in and then kind of setting them up? I've seen a lot of people on social media saying they hope that that continues. I haven't seen that really in Frederick, the way that they're doing it in some bigger cities. But that idea that like open up your doors, could you put together almost like your own you know, dinner meal kit where it's shrimp and grits. And I'm going to give you this, you know, two cups of artisan grits and I'm going to give you these really awesome shrimp and I'm going to give you a spice pack and a recipe and like send that out. Or at the very core, say, here's a can of really awesome tomatoes and it's five bucks a can. Like, what do you think about that? I think that it's great, you know, and my company and every other food distribution company completely pivoted and angled towards that when all this happened of if you have the ability to do retail, then do some retail. And here's some retail items that we have, you know, here's some ideas for take home dinner kits that we have. And um, if that means that in this time it keeps the lights on and keeps the leases open, they still have them by all means. Yeah, do it. And also support local, really support local. And um, we've all been to a Martin's or, you know, a giant or anything like that. It's scary. Like it, it's kind of scary going in there and having a mask on and not being able to find a cut of beef, you know what I mean? Or going for a can of tomatoes and there's none off the shelves. So if any of your local retailers have it, by all means support. And um, yeah, there's a couple people out this way doing it. Some people have really picked up on it, but in the major cities, that's a huge thing, you know? And um, I, I think it's great. I think it's one way that we can keep afloat and keep the lights on and pay ourselves something through all of are you do you know uh personally are you dealing with any clients that um have the market thing going on yeah i got one or two that have you know sort of transitioned and uh you know started carrying some more stuff as in to go items bags of pasta cans of tomato um you know little personal charcuterie and cheese boards that my company actually made to where it's already pre-made, you have four different cheeses, you get some charcuterie, we give it to you, and then you can retail it. You know, we pivoted and thought about what we could do, and it's going off. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of my markets closed, though. You know, they were just like, we're we're COVID closing. We don't know when we're going to be back, and we'll see what happens then. So the actual retail market that I had, um, 95% of it shut down. And then the other 5% has sort of been in limbo. And it's it's been treacherous waters and just, um, yeah, but there's some people doing it and we're all just getting through really. What issues are you having with supply chain? If any, I mean, we're hearing now a lot about beef and how bad that's getting anything that you're selling, uh, that you normally have a pretty good supply on that you're starting to see close up or is it a totally different market with you? Not a totally different market, but it is a different market. It's a different market. in the fact that the beef that I got is machine reserve Wagyu. And it's not going to go as quick as a USDA choice because it's not as cheap. You know, I mean, that that isn't going to go out as much. The breed that I have is a heritage breed pork, you know, and it, it, it's just it's not going to go as quick. That's 
you know, just the raw reality of it. So I haven't seen supply chain problems. Um, I would say maybe our inventory went down a little bit because we're just not moving the product as much. So we don't need to order it as frequently, but, um, on my end of it, no, I really haven't seen a whole lot of things going out every once in a while, I'll get an out of stock item, but we usually have a sub for it or every once in a while you'll see like a vendor out of stock and, but that goes away in a week and then it comes back into stock. But I do know like on the, uh, you know, more, I guess not as fancy food side of it. I still know some people in the big broadliners, and I mean, you know, just it's been hard for him. One of my restaurants reached out to me last week. He ordered eighty pounds of ground beef and sixty pounds of pork, and he got nothing. It, it's not like they gave him twenty of the beef and fifteen of the, like he got nothing, and he was just like, you know, what, what's going on? Can you do anything? So I helped him out with what I could, and yeah, it's, it's crazy, you know. But there's plenty of produce. You know, I mean, they're throwing away tons of that out on the fields and it's kind of crazy. Yeah, it's a good time to maybe look at diversifying your diet. You know, uh, there's been a little talk about more vegetarian, which I think was coming anyway a little bit. So maybe now's the time to get some people accustomed to that and yeah. not getting into the I'm not a big fan of the fake meats. So maybe not looking at the beyond or impossible, but just looking at like some really good vegetarian plant based yeah. dishes. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what what comes out of this as far as diet preferences when we're all done. But I know I went to the grocery store last week and there was nothing. Like uh, I was at Aldi and they had literally pulled down all the curtains on the meat section. Like nothing, no ground beef, no steak, couldn't get a bottom round. There was not, nothing, no poultry, completely out. Time to get down on that Wagyu tip and, uh, <laughs> and some yeah. of that heritage stuff. But, you know, I do have a lot of friends who have farms, especially pork. And it's, you know, we're seeing locally, you can still reach out to them. And a lot of them have great products. It's not going to be a $2.50 a pound pork tenderloin. You're maybe going to be paying like eight ninety nine a pound for like a heritage breed pork chop. It's from that small independent farmer who needs it. A hundred percent. You know, and I, if... If nothing else from all of this, I hope that that does make the populace reevaluate how difficult and intricate our our industry is, and how if one thing goes wrong, you know these um, these things that you like and have come to expect, they can be taken away from you. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, like it can go down. I just hope that people can, you know, gather from this that our industry is important and that we need it, and that it's very delicate at the same time. And then also, you know, if you have to go to these small farmers and you have to go to these independent guys, you're going to have to pay a little bit more, but they're not laughing the whole way to the bank. I mean, they're, they're just keeping their bills paid too and keeping their lights on. And, you know, I've had the discussion with a few um, restaurant owners and a few chefs. This whole thing is really making them reevaluate how they do business, making them evaluate what's important in life. I had one person tell me, you know, I'm not open from here on out, even if it gets back to normal, I'm just going to open up at three. I'm not doing my lunch because I've seen how much, you know, I just wasn't making money off of it, to tell you the truth. Like we kept it open sort of for the status and I can run my to go business from, you know, three until nine at night with two people in the kitchen and make it work. So when it comes back, it's going to be a whole different dynamic. And I hear a lot of people saying that. And I know for a fact, I've talked to a lot of people who, they actually can talk to their kid. They can actually have some time to sit down and be like, you know, 
hey, how you doing? Or talk to their family because they're not in the restaurant at 9 a.m. in the morning and they're not leaving at 10 at night. You know, I mean, they might be working from three to eight, but at least they get that morning with their kids and with their family. Because as all of us know, being in this industry, if you're in it and you hold any type of managerial position, you kind of don't have a life other than that and everything else is secondary. So um, I, I hope that it makes some people appreciate what we do and how hard we work. And I also hope that, you know, some people gain some perspective on this, on what's really important in life. Because I've personally sacrificed a lot of hours for a restaurant that paid me the same per hour, regardless of how much I put into it, you know? And I, I, I think that that's important for us to recognize right now is that this is amazing. It's a beautiful industry, but maybe it got pushed kind of hard. Maybe it did. And this is a reminder of maybe for us, we can find a different way to do it, but still make it lucrative. Yeah. You know, I want to get back to work, but I've always wanted a good work-life balance. I feel like there's still so many people I'm seeing out there, especially on social media, who seem like they have no other life. And that's so sad to me. And not that you can't enjoy your job, but I see people tweeting all the time, like, it's Friday night. I was wish, wishing I could hear that ticket thing going. And I was with my butt like all day. Their tweets were like, oh, it's Mother's Day. I never thought I'd be off on Mother's Day. It's like, go talk to your mom or, or your wife or whatever. Like, but these people are just lamenting. And it seems like all day, every day, they're so caught up in that restaurant machine. It's like that became their whole life. And still two months in, seems like they have not reconnected to life outside of the restaurant to me that's sad like i never wanted that to begin with but these people who are just like all day oh another saturday night i don't know what i'm gonna do wish i could be having you know shift meal with my homies it's like mm, like maybe find a hobby or like connect with one of your friends outside the restaurant i don't know like that just seems to be a, a thing in the restaurant industry that we get so caught up in that that it's like the only thing we have going for us I'd be interested to see the percentage of the people who are saying that that don't have families, you know, because like I, we all have children here. Right. And we all love to spend time with our kids. It's been good to have some extra time. But I know when I was aspiring chef at 25 years old and I didn't have a kid, I was in the Outer Banks of North Carolina. I was surfing and my time off. And as soon as my time came to go in there, I was hitting it as hard as I could to be creative, to make something work, to get, you know, have the the best, you know, red drum that was caught that day off the banks. Like that was important to me. So I can kind of see those guys who were these budding chefs that are always in the weeds and trying to get through it. Like that it's almost their addiction. That's what they want right now. You know? So if you, I can see the people who have families and have stuff outside of that, this is almost a celebrated relief. But if I was still that 25 year old guy who my world revolved around you know, my meal for that night and the specials I was getting in, I can understand people want to get back to that. Yeah, I guess. I just don't like to be so one dimensional. Like if I didn't have my family here, I'd be going out with my camera, taking photos. I'd be, you know, like I'm trying to learn guitar. I would listen to like some cool albums and sit down. I'd read the books I want to read. Like, I feel like there's a lot going on besides just your job. And I think really quickly, you also realized a lot of those jobs didn't give a shit about you. Like, I hope that, I don't want to say I hope that kicks in, but these people who gave everything, their life to these restaurants and these jobs, like, how's your boss doing right now? Is he checking in on you? Is he helping financially support you? Like, did he cut, did he cut off your health care? Like, that's the thing is I think a lot of people are going to see really quickly that like they were just, it was just business. It was just work. 
And at the end of the day, when shit hit the fan, a lot of bosses covered their asses to do what they needed to do and cut a lot of these people loose. And I think you're going to have a lot of people maybe not go back to this industry after this. I think you're 100% right on that. Yeah, what, what I said is like understanding people wanting to get back. I can understand it. But you made a very valid point on, and I think that may speak to the mental health, our mental health in the food and beverage industry. Like you, have, you sort of have to have like a twist, like a tortured soul to almost work in this thing. You know, like I always said, if you're in the industry, your elevator can't go the whole way to the top because you got to be a little bit crazy to deal with a rush. You got to be a little bit crazy just to deal with everything. But maybe that does speak to where we were at mentally with what we thought was expected of us and what we thought we should do. And maybe a lot of us did put in too much for these people who dropped us. I haven't been dropped personally. You know, I, I feel fortunate for that, but I have seen that. And it's a very valid point. And I've talked to some people who said, I'm just leaving. I'm not coming back to the industry. You know, it, it's over with. It's like, I'm at ground zero already with nothing. You know, there's nowhere to go but up. So they're going to take an entry level position, driving a truck or something like that. More power to them. I wish them the best all the time. Yeah. But I mean, there's opportunities here. We've been talking about it for weeks. I mean, Andrew, we did a whole episode about how he's kind of adapting to this thing. I think. If you're mm-hmm. creative, if you've got the drive, if you really want to make your business work, I think there's ways to to figure that out or to do something. So everything's getting a lot more efficient now, I think, basically. And um, I mean, restaurants take a big hit and a lot of them can't figure out how to pivot, especially if they're a big restaurant. It's like makes it even harder to pivot your whole operation. You know what I mean? So, but I think there's a lot of opportunity as well because everybody still needs to eat. Um, it's almost just like, I think going back to what we talked about earlier, like fine dining, I think the way fine dining is going to change is it becomes this whole new experience, like elevates to something that, you know, you don't go to an establishment and that's fine dining anymore. Or like, you know, maybe it's time for that anyway. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, I also agree with what you were saying about people being stuck in it and addicted to it because, uh part of my whole switch in, in the way I was doing business was kind of like um, over the summers, I don't really spend any time with my family. And it's very inconsistent because, you know, we might have a busy event on a Friday night that really ends up not being busy because it rained or something like that. But either way, I'm not seeing my family, you know? So a big part of the way that I'm doing business now is actually to optimize my hours and uh, make the best of them, you know? And then that way I get time with my family and stuff like that. So it's harder to do that with this big machine that's running, you know, and keep everybody fed in the whole system. Uh, and for me, it's kind of like, I have very few employees. We're starting to bring them back on now. They were, you know, they got on unemployment and stuff, but their hours were already limited. And now um, I, I kind of see it as a beneficial thing for me. I kind of get to build it into a place of comfort between family and, and my passion with pizza and everything else. And I think I think the raw reality of it is that the three of us have no idea what's going to happen. Neither of the rest of the industry. I mean, like this is a brave new world that we're all walking into with our heads up high, trying to make it. But I mean, it is daunting. Like I, you know, I look at it and I'm just like, where are the orders? You know, where are the people calling me? If you can adapt really quickly, I mean, that's to your benefit. I think the problem is people don't adapt. Like if tomorrow Andrew decides it's in his best interest to start making salads put four salads on your menu and send them out there. You know, like he can make salads now. 
there you go, making salads already. <laughs> I kind of almost look at it too sometimes, like you said, about adapting the people who can do that. This is survival of the fittest. You, the, the people who are going to you know, have enough gumption and enough heart to go in and be like, okay, here's where the market's going. Here's where I need to be in front of it. That's who's going to be here in three years being like, man, COVID was crazy. You remember that? And the people who are like, I'm going to change nothing and serve the same thing that I've been serving. Why aren't people coming here? It's like, I mean, it just is what it is, man. You got to be smart enough to adapt through this. Yeah. That's essential right now. Like Mm -hmm. we're considered essential and essential part of this duty is to adapt to the situation that's going on. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Because, I don't know. Food's never going away in my point of view. And there's always okay. going to need to be people like us to sell it, to make it, to report on it and to do everything that's encompassed inside of it, you know, but um, it's just going to be very, very, I don't strange to see how it all unfolds. And I think that uh, some of our ideals of, you know, what good food is can change too. Cause I know that me and Chris spoke um, before about it and it's like, you know, there's a couple of culinary techniques that are taught and how to make this wonderful food, but really there's like a Nicaraguan, you know, lunch that you've never heard of. That's one of the best things that you've ever tasted in your life. Mm-hmm. And how can we make that to where that's the fancy food, you know, to where we're bringing in different cultures and we're bringing in different ideas of what can be nice and what can be good because there's not one right answer to it. So I think that it would be cool to start exploring and seeing really what can come to market and actually sell as opposed to stuff that we've been practicing for years. Yeah. I think the thing about that is like, if we're talking about quote unquote, like ethnic foods or cuisines that people aren't familiar with, those tend to be not necessarily formal experiences. I think there's definitely an opportunity for people to have these small kind of strip mall shops that really primarily rely on takeout. You know, I'm interested to see if you're going to have some more of those cuisines popping up. Like mm-hmm. in town, we have jerk and jive. I love them. I've never sat in their restaurant. Like it's not about the service experience, it's about the food. And a place like that, I think, is doing really well right now. I think we've gotten them like five times in the two months that, you know, we've been uh, sitting at home with this thing because it's super convenient and it's delicious food. And I think you could see a Nicaraguan restaurant do really well in something like that, where it's not about this white glove formal um, service experience, just like really solid food that translates well to a takeout environment. Good food is good food, and that's what it is. It makes me think of all the things that people would be like, uh, I'm not eating that if you put it in a takeout container. Like, you go to these fancy restaurants, and they got these dishes that are, like, beautiful, and you got to get in a takeout container, and now all of a sudden it's not appetizing. Maybe that says something about food and that food should be delicious first and pretty second. I don't know. Like, everyone likes to throw around that you eat with your eyes, which I really hate that expression because I also eat with my taste buds. And how many times have you gone out to a very formal fine dining experience and it looks really pretty and then you eat it and there's like, there was 15 ingredients and probably you didn't need 10 of them. And it was just Mm -hmm. to like make it look a certain way. And at the end of the day, it didn't taste that great. And I'd rather go have a taco on the way home. You know, I was just going to say, you eat the meal out there and then you stop for like three tacos because you didn't even get filled up, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm going to jump into like speed round right now and kind of get into some of these questions. If you're ready to roll with that, can you handle a speed round? I'm going to try my best. No, no one does it really fast anyway. Okay. Um, For these times I've kind of adapted some of these questions. So one of the things I've been talking about is, you know, we're quarantined at home. So what are some things that you stocked up on before we were going into lockdown? Now, I mean, that's not really fair because you are part of like a supplier and you could probably get whatever you want. 
but most normal people had to run to the grocery store like it was the end of the world and stock up on stuff. So what are some things that you grabbed or you wish you grabbed or just things that you think are essential pantry items? Um, for me, it was proteins. Yeah, I stocked up a lot of proteins when all this first happened. Um, frozen vegetables. Yeah, I mean, I, I stocked up on them. Basically, I went as health conscious as I could. You know, I got some fresh produce, but I also made sure I got some frozen ones. I got some, a lot of pork tenderloin because I love it and it was on sale. And then I got any type of beef that I could find. And I really just stocked up on what is essential and healthy. You know, I didn't really, I wasn't going to get, you know, double mint Oreos because that's one of my guilty pleasures. You know, I wasn't really worried about that. I stocked up on like the essentials, the stuff that's going to keep me alive as opposed to like what I want. And um, I tried to eat healthy prior to all that. But actually, this has just been like, it's been more of a thing for me to try to be as healthy as possible because those are the essential foods that you need to survive. So that's that's where I came out with it. We stocked up on some treats as well, not just the essentials. We got some, uh, my kids love the Takis, you know, the Taki chips, like the spicy Frito type things. We stocked up on a ton of those. Well, not a ton, like two bags and they were gone and Oh no! I mean, my son still has his salt and vinegar chips and dip. You know, <laughs> but I mean, they're still there. Only thing I stocked up on was rice. Actually, we have eaten a lot of rice in this house, oh, uh, and we do. You know, one of my favorite things is like fried rice too, because fried rice is like the best vehicle for leftovers. Like, mm-hmm. you just cook up some rice, and then like you got a pork chop left in there. You got some weird vegetable. Like we did one two days ago, actually it wasn't rice. It was leftover quinoa. And like we put Brussels sprouts and eggplant, peppers and onions in there. And then just like this cooked quinoa. If we didn't have cooked quinoa, we would have done rice. And like, I think we had leftover pork chops and just like chopped them up and threw them in there. So you're a fried rice guy, Andrew, aren't you? Isn't that your jam? Fried rice? Fried rice. I mean, I just like rice in general. Um, Obviously I love pizza and I eat enough of that. So at home I make, I like eat a lot of rice dishes and stews and Fried rice is like a given. I'm always making more rice so I can make fried rice. So do you have any favorite culinary resources? Like, are you someone who still stays on top of things? Are you reading cookbooks, um, go watching cooking shows, going to websites? Do you stay in it like that? Yeah, most definitely. I mean, like, I keep my ear to the street, if you would, in the, in the food world and see what's going on. Follow a lot of stuff on Instagram. Uh, a lot of cooking shows. Um, I mean, shoot, you go into my Facebook into the video section, every other thing is just something about food, something about this and that. I'm very interested in, in to, and to tell you the truth, it's part of my job to make sure I know where the industry's at. But yeah, I, I definitely always am, you know, wondering about food, trying to find something new, trying to find a new taste and seeing who's doing it. Do you have any favorites, recommendations, go-tos, anything? It may not be as professional as some people say, but fuck, that's delicious with Action Bronson. I don't know if you've ever watched that, but for the entertainment factor and also for some of the food they put out, like really, really good. You people know? love him. People get into that new season. It looks funny. I mean, I look at a lot of different stuff. It's almost like there's so much out there right now. I can't pinpoint, you know, who I'm really following. I try to follow all my local people to see what they're doing, and I try to find, you know, follow around the DC, Baltimore area to see what's going on just because it's local and you know this is my home but i mean there's there's amazing stuff everywhere Uh, i'm sorry i was just gonna say that's a great segue because we also ask like who are some places that are still open that you'd like to give a little love to like are there any i'm sure you have tons of customers who's still open that you think people should go check out right now 
All right, here's my long answer because I'm shouting out everybody's story. Please do. <laughs> okay. So um, first and foremost, go to Pizza Llama. Right, Andrew? Thank you, sir. Go to yeah. Pizza Llama. Get you some squares. Exactly. Exactly. Go support that. Guidehouse Grill down in Knoxville, Maryland. Go see Darren. Go see Sarah. They've been doing it. They put out amazing food. Always have. Always will. Um, go to the tasting room. Make sure you're doing that. Show love to Pastaro's. Over in Frederick, they're doing a great amount of takeout, as is Brewer's Alley. Canapes Catering out in Frederick, they're still doing their thing. Um, Chrysalis Vineyards in Middleburg, Virginia, they're still doing it. Dolce and Shibata in Leesburg, Virginia, go down there and um, get some amazing pastries, get other stuff. Who else can I shout out? Dan's Restaurant and Tap House in Boonesboro, Maryland. For that area, they're doing a great amount of takeout. Captain Bender's Tavern, go see Steve in Sharpsburg, Maryland. The Green Pineapple in Shepherdstown, West Virginia. That's a ramen spot, Korean fusion place. Go check them out. Um, domestic in Shepherdstown. Go check them out. Uh, who else? Do? If you're ever up in Berkeley Springs, go to Fluera Delice Cheese Shop. My girl up there is running it. She's doing a hell of a job. Shout out to Regina. Yeah, I mean, we're all still going. And I could probably honestly name more people, but that's just, um, you know, what's going on. Kushwa. Over in Williamsport, they just opened up their new place and they're doing to go. Uh, saw a post with Chris and White Rabbit out there, whole bunch of growlers. I'm hoping that maybe they get back to packaging some stuff and selling out of there. Um, but yeah, I mean, seriously, go out to every single independent restaurant that you can. Go support local. Go do all that. There's a million websites. I started one, which was takeout for the Eastern Panhandle, Frederick, and Washington County. Um, there's a Frederick to go. There's a Washington County to go. There's a Montgomery County to go. I mean, really, like in this time, for anybody that's listening, definitely support local, support everybody that I talked about and everybody else that I forgot to talk about. Awesome. Love giving that love. There's, like you said, I can't even say it better. So many places still out there. Go check some of them out. Do you have a favorite meal? I hate to say like best meal ever, but like what's a really memorable meal that you've had somewhere? My most most uh, memorable meal probably that I had was uh, coming down the mountain in Waimea Canyon in Hawaii. We were coming down the mountain, and along the side there was a fish shack with a Hawaiian running in it. I mean, it was the stereotypical thing you'd see. Tiki fish, you know, fish shack. Um, he had a papaya glaze, and he had a mango glaze, both of which he picked off of his, you know, backyard. And he was just serving up shrimp. And he was served, I think it was mahi that he had. And um, he had so much stuff there. But I just remember coming down that mountain, stopping on the side. And he had this glaze he put on the fish. And the shrimp were just so fresh. And I just asked him, I said, you know, where do you source this? And he just pointed behind him to a trail. And there was a boat down there. And he's like, I bring it in every morning. And it was the freshest, most like effervescent meal that I had ever had in my life. And just talking to that guy on the side of the road and like, He'd probably been doing it for 25 years, catching his own fish, bringing it right in from the Pacific. That that at least sticks out to me now. You know, I've had a lot of really good meals, but that was one where it was just like so natural, so fresh, and just so delicious. And then seeing where it came from also. So, yeah. I'm, sh I'm sure the scenery wasn't that bad either. No, not at all. Not at all. I have no idea why I ever came back. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And we usually close out with asking, what do you want to be remembered for? And that could be personally, professionally, or both. I think what I want to be remembered for is overall being a good person. I know I got my flaws, as does everybody else, but 
being a good person, a good dad, and in business, a fair, you know, good person really is what I want to be remembered as. I'm, I'm not that special, but I just hope I did good business and was a good person. We all do. I know I do. I'm sure Andrew does. For sure. Andrew, what do you have for questions? Any parting words? Anything we didn't get into? No, I better, uh, we better get off here and, so I can get my order in. Those Let reps and their cutoff times, they're rough. Nothing specific. It's been good talking to you, Jacob, and getting some perspective that I don't usually. It's usually just business. So, Most definitely. And I, I thank you guys for having me on, and I applaud what you're doing. It's a great podcast. Well, thanks, thank you so much. I was glad to hear that you were listening to the show and that you reached out. To all our listeners, this was the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. As always, you can find us at chefswithoutrestaurants.com and .org and on all social media platforms. Thanks for listening and have a great week. Thanks for listening to the Chefs Without Restaurants podcast. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show or sponsoring a show, please let us know. We can be reached at chefswithoutrestaurants at gmail.com. Thanks so much.